Hmm. This is, uh... Wait, what? Hey, Peter! Are you ready to go over this? Uh, we got your bridge officer exam tomorrow, and I mean, we, I think we both know leadership in a temporal crisis is gonna be on there. We gotta... We gotta go over this. Yeah, man, I've been cramming on this hard. Like, I feel pretty good about all the command stuff, but... Have you actually read the material on temporal crisis training? It's a... Uh, I, I don't know, man. Maybe, maybe in context it'll it'll make sense. You know what? Let me just rip some of these uh, examples from the study manual. We'll go from there. Uh, let's see. Number one. Uh, your ship is vomited across time and space after a violent disagreement with a future space cop. And, and you wind up on Earth... In the 1990s, what do you do first? Obviously, I would probably take the starship to the far side of the moon and then use our badass technology to, like, make sure that I'm scrambling any primitive uh, Earth sensor devices that could scan the ship. I'd then use my superior sensors to scan uh, the planet through the moon uh, with senior staff before executing any sort of strategy to get back to the correct time. And of course, uh, you know, just in case there was any damage to the ship, I'd make sure that all the ship systems are up and running 100% before I stuck my dick in anything in the past, because, <laughs> I mean, what's the rush? Well, actually, that's entirely incorrect. It says here that all the major bridge crew uh, should immediately beam down and leave the most junior ensign in charge of the ship. Bullshit, it doesn't say that. Yeah, it actually says you get bonus points if you do this when the ship's all fucked up and damaged. What? Uh, oh, uh, get, get, give me the next one. Uh, okay. Uh, your away team is has now beamed to the surface of 90s Earth, and someone starts shooting at you with an obviously futuristic space laser while in a major national landmark around hundreds of potential witnesses. What is the correct response? Uh, standard operating procedure, your guys get the hell out of their ASAP. You do not engage or put on a spectacle, especially uh, not with uh, any other future weaponry, um, because, you know, back to the future, obviously you're going to contaminate the timeline. Uh, you know, my guys can circle back later to assess if there's uh, anything we can do to undo those damages. Oh, fuck. Sorry, dude. It says here you're actually supposed to return fire with your own space lasers, but only after you do some sweet forward somersault moves. Dude, it does, let me see the book. It does not... What the fuck? What? Somersault? Are you serious? Well, I'll tell you what, man. What, what, what's the next one? Okay, is it about uh, uh, flying my big Federation ship over uh, the highest population center in North America while everybody's outside? Um, and expose millions to temporal contamination? Um, actually, uh, yes. What? Dude, who wrote this manual? Is it Jerry Taylor? I, look, we are enlightened super science space astronauts here. Um, I, I think it should be common sense that all of this is terrible and that we should be really careful about contaminating the time-space continuum. Well, dude, dude, if you need me to, I can go get that time hobo. He can come back in and explain no, everything uh -uh. again. Listen, you get that dirty motherfucker out of my room. I told you the last time, all right? You know what? Fuck that time hobo, okay? Just call me Janeway because fuck this, fuck Starfleet, and fuck the Federation, right? I'm out.
Welcome to Feature Please, a hateful voyage through the Delta Quadrant. My name is Joseph. I'm Peter. Peter, this is episode 50 of Feature Please. Can you fucking believe it? That is at least 50 hours that we have aired, not to mention all the time and prep and episode watching and everything that you and I have done, you doing all this editing. That's a lot of time. It is almost that's a full over year. two days. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited though, man. It's all been leading to this. This this is such a delight. Fucking futures end. We're Part here. One. <laughs> Part one. There's more to come. What I'm excited about is when we go to pick this back up next week, we're gonna go back to futures end. <laughs> this could. This could use some Marty McFly or some Doc Brown time travel technology. Common sense. Yeah. The courtesy yeah, of our uh, our opening here. Clearly, Back to the Future trilogy did not exist here. All right, man. Season three, episode eight, Future's End, part one. We start out with a completely useless scene. Uh, can I point out how ridiculous it is that, you know, Janeway is practicing, <laughs> trying to hit a ball because uh, he's she's. What's happening is she's throwing this this future tennis ball up into the air because she's elected to take up tennis again because she's bored, I guess, and she hasn't played tennis since high school. And she's purposefully oriented herself so that if she succeeds in hitting the ball, it's going to careen directly towards the door, right? And then the door chime goes off and tells whoever's behind the door to come in just as she is attempting to do this. Well, Janeway's a bitch. I don't know what to tell you, man. It's like, so if you succeed in what you are attempting to do, in the moment you tell someone to come in, you're going to hit them in the face with a tennis ball, a future tennis ball. I like it. You know, what was the episode where? Oh, it's where, where uh, what's her face was about to have her kid. I think that was deadlock, right? I like when they show the bridge and the bridge crew on duty when there's not a big emergency or something awesome going on, which should be, you know, like 80% of their day is just sitting in chairs, flying through space faster than light. Right, right. Still screwing around, practicing your tennis serve in your ready room while you're supposed to be working. Um, seems good. Hey, kind of you know what? Even the captain's checking Facebook on his phone. You know, <laughs> you know, she already said fuck Starfleet and fuck the Federation, you know, rule schmools. This uh, this episode is pretty wild, and I'm going to skip to the end here. I didn't think it was awful. Oh, it's not awful. Uh, it's it is the best kind of of entertaining bad. This is good bad. This is good bad Star Trek. You know what I mean? I'm going to say even more than that. Like I came in ready to just write pages and pages of notes and just rip this thing a new asshole. But I thought as far as Voyager episodes go, even though it's pretty zany and there's some dumb stuff going on, like flows good. It's an enjoyable watch. And I think that this is the first time in a while that they've put some consequences on the table that feel big and keep me engaged. So uh, I'm looking forward about talking about this guy. Well, they cut to the action pretty quick after this useless opening scene about Janeway wanting to play tennis. Uh, we get a alert situation. Everyone comes to the bridge and there's a handy little space butthole space time butthole that's opening in front of the ship. And they note a little tiny little shuttlecraft sized vessel seems to be emerging from it. 
that uh, Harry notes has a Federation signature, but whatever it is, immediately starts running hot game all over Voyager trying to, to fuck with it. Try to kill them. Like, weapons are hot. They're they're trying to murder them. Yeah, typical uh, Federation fashion. I like the time anomaly they use. Normally, we see stuff that's, you know, like you said, a space butthole. It's uh, the wormhole effect. Where you've got a circular disturbance. This thing is like a big ribbon, right? It's kind of shades of uh, what was the, the main the nexus from Ger- Generations? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a long, like purple tear in space that looks pretty huge. Uh, or maybe it's the fact that the ship that comes through is just like a one seater fighter that comes through. And like you said, they it starts shooting at Voyager. And I'd say this is like the weak part of the episode for me is that we have what we will ultimately find out is a time ship from the 29th century, I believe, whatever the version of the Federation that's around then. It's a single seater with a captain caveman, as I'll come to call him because of this brow line, this guy's rocking. But I thought it was silly that the ship's coming in with like super advanced weapons and it doesn't, you know, with the intention of attacking Voyager and it doesn't just one shot them. Here we are already out of order. There was a, a pre-credits teaser of something happening in the high Sierras in 1960s earth where a hippie looking guy sees some kind of, ship crash in the mountains and he says it's far out the most unconvincing far out ever yeah and ed bigley jr far out i didn't even realize that was the guy until i was reading memory alpha after like that's how i don't know forgettable that scene was yeah we already forgot it i mean (laughs) it was such a forgettable scene that we started doing an episode recap and completely forgot about it but anyway this guy captain eyebrows captain braxton is this character's name and captain he says he's he's from uh the super future of the 29th century and he is here to murder voyager and he's here to murder voyager because evidently voyager uh's uh pieces have been found and an explosion in the 29th century that destroyed uh the entire earth solar system so the entire soul system has been destroyed probably billions of people are dead and for some reason voyager's secondary hall was found at the site of the explosion and so time of time cop here captain time cop has shown up to nip it in the bud by just blowing him up right now i don't I'm and he's fucking serious about it he's not he's not stopping he's not negotiating he's like lower your shield so i can murder you please let's let's wrap this up I'm going to pull us in the mud on this one. Like the entire Earth's soul, you know, solar system has been destroyed. And it's just one guy who gets dispatched back in time to deal with this mess. Like, is everybody else dead and this is the only guy around to do it? Or do you have a 29th century temporal, what's it called? The Temporal Investigation Bureau or something that is just dealing with catastrophic events like this left and right and you know it seems like a huge deal to us but to them in the future it's just another little blip and you know their big problems are the thanoses or (laughs) you know galactic (laughs) world eaters out there like one little intrepid class starship blown up the solar system like eh, whatever just send out uh gary caveman he'll he'll be able to handle this solo they they end up 
believe it or not, like going further down the road of 29th century Federation time cops, not just in Voyager, but in Enterprise later. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So there's actually some lore that gets built up as to like how this all works. And this was kind of their first stab at it. They do a better job of developing, developing it later. Uh, It gets touched on in uh, next gen too, doesn't it? When Picard goes to Ryza with Vash. Well, at least there's criminals who are from the future that pretend to be Federation time cops, but that is correct. I mean, there's there's uh there's like fake time stuff in next gen, but this guy is legit from the 29th century and is legit trying to murder them for things that they have not done yet. Janeway is like, ah, fuck this guy. Uh, I don't know if he's who this guy is. I don't know if he's telling the truth. And I'm certainly not just going to just blow up because he tells me to because good call Janeway. It's like the <laughs> only good decision she makes on right. episode. And, and uh, Picote's like, don't you think we should just let him blow us up? And she's like, uh, no. We're in the Delta Quadrant. We're just going to trust some dude who comes by and says, I, <laughs> you have to let me murder you. Because he says he's from the future? Like, aren't you in Starfleet? <laughs> I thought no, you were supposed to be the best of the best. <laughs> what, what's wrong with you? So somehow the super future ship does not just one-shot Voyager, and uh, he catches him in some sort of a tractor beam. Meanwhile, the temporal rift is just open behind him, because why would he have closed the door when he came in? This captain's the, the the time cop captain's the worst ever. Like, oh, somehow Voyager gets sloppy. in the future and blows everything up. Let me just leave a gateway to time and space open behind me while I initiate, you know, high energy fire or whatever. And it's actually Chakotay that comes up with this genius idea of how to jam the future tech weapons up to the point where Voyager gets the upper hand for a second, um, destabilizes that little part of space, and all of a sudden. Time cop ship and Voyager go tumbling into this uh, quantum singularity tear in reality. And when everyone comes to after the uh, inevitable flash and, you know, everyone's on the ground after all the space turbulence, they wake up and right there in the center of the view screen is Earth. And. For a moment, everyone's got that look of wonderment of like, what the fuck is this real kind of thought? They try to contact Starfleet Command like, okay, somehow we're fucking back home. Let's let's figure this shit out. And uh, Tuvok lets him know. uh, Yeah, so there is no there is no Starfleet. Uh, We're picking up all this bullshit stuff that sounds like early 20th century. And they pin it down that they're not in the 24th century. They're, in fact, in the year 1996. Uh, This episode was made in 1996. Mm. I'm sure you're shocked. This is so gross. This is like... (laughs) This is like playing in an RPG... Like uh, and and making yourself in the game like that's the <laughs> level of cringe that this is. Yeah, but like all these other time travel episodes that we have seen in Berman era Trek have attempted to do something interesting and unique with the time travel concept in terms of like where the characters go back in time. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, the 
the DS9 ones went to a like future point to us relative, but uh, to when it was shown. But, TOS era. Uh, TOS did the relativistic time travel to the 60s, but like Berman era Trek, they always tried to do something interesting with the time travel idea until now. This is this is lazy as it possibly gets. Like we want to do a time travel episode, so they're going to time travel to now. I mean, fuck it. 10 out of 10. Great job, guys. Like, <laughs> fuck. That's awesome. It's great. I got I do you think they did this because it saves them money? Like, oh, we shoot on location. <laughs> we'll just go to fucking Venice Beach. It'll be sweet. Do you think when they were sitting in the writer's room coming up with this, that they were at any point concerned that sending them to 1990, sending them to modern day would have been too interesting? <laughs> <laughs> that this episode could have possibly been too good? Uh, as we alluded to in our opening, uh, Voyager spends about 30 seconds figuring out what's going on. <laughs> Their ship's all messed up. Nothing works, but they get the sensors working long enough to realize where they are and all that. And they use their sensors to, to detect basically the, the 29th centuryness of uh, the time ship. And they they pinpoint Los Angeles. I mean, like we're the, <laughs> to maximize. I'm amazed it wasn't a water plant. <laughs> it's like to maximize the fucking goddamn laziness of it. It's not just that it's. Tra- time travel to current year it's time travel to current year and where we film yeah. <laughs> like, we're not even to go someplace interesting quickly the entire bridge crew gets together uh to head down to the surface and they leave harry fucking kim in charge i i couldn't i i, I remember this from when i last watched it but like the the benefit of hindsight now i'm like you are on the precipice of potentially fucking with all of space time. If you make any mistakes and you're going to leave the guy with the least amount of experience in charge of the doomsday vessel that is half functioning. Let that sink in. You know, this is against all protocol. You're taking the first officer, the captain, your convict boy toy and the straight lace by the books, um, protocol slave, who is also an alien and, you know, represents a risk of of all that jazz. And you're going to leave. Yeah. Wet behind the ears. Harry Kim down there. One of three things happened. Um, one. Everybody on Voyager in uh, the senior crew was really just secretly giddy about the fact to go on Earth um, back in ancient history and just willfully disregarded the rules and common sense and was just like, God, I want to go down there looked at each other and kind of nodded in agreement, like F the rules. We're going to go down and check this out. This is too good to pass up Two, during their um, trip through time and space. All the senior crew members hit their head really hard and somehow <laughs> they're all concussed at the same time. Mm-hmm. There's a very good medical reason why um, all these people came to this terrible idea or three. Harry Kim's got really bad BO today and everybody's just in a big rush to get off that bridge. Like, whoa. And I can't tell you which option is the truth while we're sitting here talking about this, you know, and the joke that we're poking at the beginning, like mm, big part of this too, is uh, all sorts of ship systems are offline, like weapons. And I forget what else. And also transporter, although the transporter might break after they already beam down, but Stuff's not right. And they do a half-assed job trying to scramble themselves. But 
they're out there in free orbit around the planet. Like anybody with a telescope might be able to pick them up. Let me let me pitch you this one, Joe. They know that they're going to be involved in something that blows up Earth. Uh-huh. They could, if they wanted, just warp the fuck up out of there and go hang out on the outskirts of the solar system where nobody would ever discover them. Right. Right. And what if I told you if there was a technology that was available to the people of Voyager that would allow them to cryo sleep <laughs> in perpetual safety and health minus a vicious space clown for centuries. It's true. Until it would be appropriate for them to thaw themselves out and reintegrate with the Federation. That's what true. if I told you that technology existed on Voyager? <sighs> but that's not the story they wanted to tell. Was no, it? no, they, they dispense with any sort of serious consideration of the situation they're in, in a matter of literal seconds. And this is the most ramrody of ramrod the plot plots. I mean, at this I point, they seen. know the time cop was probably telling the truth because they have now time traveled. So like and they're at Earth. So there's, no- there's there's not even a chalkboard scene where they're like, OK, here's our timeline. Here's what you know, like where where like Doc Brown pulls out the chalkboard and explains to Marty about, you know, the time space continuum and all that. There, there's zero regard for any of that. They're just like, uh, guess we're going to the surface and uh, let's get some 1996 clothes. And uh, Tuvok, you're going to come with us, but you're a Vulcan and you have alien features. We can totally turn people into Cardassians and Romulans. But, you know, we don't even have the five minutes for the doctor to clip yours. Fuck it. Throw on a do-rag. We're going to L.A. <laughs> I mean... The next shot of them on Venice Beach is fucking amazing. The establishing shot that they pull, it is the most 90s television shot of all time. All like it's just this perfect cavalcade of every 90s stereotype comes through this panning shot that they do from from staring at the ground and at a cross. We've got uh, you've got rollerbladers, you've got uh, goth people, uh, you've got ladies and boobs, you've got ladies in bathing suits wearing stripper heels, mm-hmm. uh, you've got lots of long shorts, almost jorts, the near the jort of the mid-90s, you know, a lot of loose baggy t-shirts, um, perfect Southern California sun, and it pans back over to our heroes and they have on the most perfect ensembles. You've got Chakotay and what you referenced last week as his Miami Vice detective slash cocaine dealer, uh, Pais- you know, like uh, Paisley, uh, pink fuchsia shit going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got Janeway absolutely killing it in a white power suit straight out of the Hillary Clinton collection. I was going to say, is that the same thing she was wearing in the... Uh mess hall when the Anarns were there and she got to learn how to play the blue balls. I think this is actually kind of like a better version of that from the looks of it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You've got Tuvok in what can only be said as a prophetic uh, uh, re- uh, use of what you called the Tupac Tuvok from, I don't know if you remember you saying that like months oh, I ago. Remember. 
mm-hmm. but here is the actual Tuvok Tuvok with Tuvok with a do rag. And then you've got Tom Paris, who has come with the team because he's an expert in the 20th century. And the only clever bit of writing is that his expertise in the 20th century is anachronistic to the 90s. He's an ex- his expertise is like the 60s. And so he gets shit wrong all the time in this episode. Mm-hmm. And uh, he is dressed like the guy who comes by and bangs your mom after your dad goes to work. <laughs> That's what he's dressed like. He's dressed like Sancho. that guy. Sancho. Sancho. Um, not a lot of minorities in this interpretation of uh, L.A. Yeah, that's odd. <laughs> yeah, a lot of white people. A, yeah, that was a stand. I didn't see any Hispanic people at all. It's uh, interesting choices there. Of course, we have our heroes like snidely mention that everyone looks weird to them. I'm like, look at all these weirdos in the 90s. <laughs> right. And uh, so this is where the, the plot wormhole ends and that's how i think i'm gonna start regarding these these ramrod episodes is you have the wormhole open you have a series of ridiculous decisions suck the voyager crew into the ramrod hole and then spit them out at some point where it's like all right now that we've just done as much stupid stuff as possible to get us here here we are enjoy the episode and they start to just kind of slow down and breathe a little bit. And this is where I think, you know, my enjoyment for this um, starts to pick up. You've got two plots that get laid out here. You've got the lingering subspace signal, uh, which again is future tech that I believe Chakotay and uh, Janeway are going to go look for. Correct. I don't know what, what's, Tuvok and uh Tuvok and Tom are the ones that go end up uh, at the, the observatory. But Yeah, but why do they go to the observatory? The the first kind of branch that we go on is we follow uh Janeway and Chicote after they decide to split up. And they have a conversation that actually lays down some interesting canon for Star Trek. Apparently, in 2047, all of LA is destroyed in a giant earthquake. <laughs> So something called the Hermosa Quake happens and L.A. no longer exists. It's all underground and becomes basically a giant coral reef on Earth, which is pretty fucking wild. That means like millions of people probably horrifically died. It was a it was a Dwayne The Rock Johnson movie come to life at some (laughs) point in 2047. Uh, Chakotay tries to hit on Janeway and fails. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Which was brilliant and uh they continue on with their their discussion about you know the the weirdness of the 90s around them because the writers just could not help themselves and eventually uh we arrive back at paris and and tuvok they're they're on like a beach they're looking around they're trying to to find uh the signal they're not having much luck and Janeway detects a hobo. A hobo has a subspace signature. And they're very confused as to why this hobo has the subspace signature. But that's when we cut to the real delight of the episode. And that's when we cut to Griffith Observatory. So, this is 1996. This is a full 10 years before this person becomes famous. But what do we cut to, Peter? 
Oh, you know what? I just ran a Google search for... You ever catch Way of the Gun? Oh, what do you mean, Way of the Gun? Way of the Gun, it's got a... (laughs) (laughs) I have no idea. I have no idea what you're talking about, Peter. I have no idea. (laughs) I got the reply. That's a real choice. So Way of the Gun comes out in 2000. That was my first real exposure to, of course, Sarah Silverman, who... uh, accuses uh benicio del toro of being ryan philippe's uh gay uncle <laughs> um she's qu- she think- is credited as raving bitch in that movie by the way and rightfully so and even that like wasn't really the the big jump off her career like that was what i always looked back and said man i can't believe she was in that movie that's great that you had that sound clip i had no idea we were gonna go this direction um <laughs> i knew we would we had the gun- <laughs> Way of the Gun comes out in 2000. So, I mean, this is, yeah, four years before even Way of the Gun. So she is like a super nobody. And yeah. uh, there she is, Sarah Silverman, plugged in as an astronomer. Milk a the- 90s chick to the max. Like, it, it, like born in a vat. She's a Portlandia character that they have imported back in time for portrayal here. And in keeping with Star Trek tradition of our uh, guest star leading ladies, massive eyebrow action, massive yeah, cave lady eyebrows. But that Sarah Silverman, so you kind of already knew that. And I think that's what turns them on to that is that Voyager detects that they're getting hit with a sensor sweep aimed at detecting the gamma radiation that the engines produce or something. And uh, it's Kim and Bolana that radio down to the way team say that, hey, something just tagged us. We were able to triangulate its location. And that's what gets uh, Tuvok and Paris off to go investigate. So they go skulking about inside this observatory. Well, well, let's, well I, let's back up just a bit because there's a lot that happens in between A and B there. Sarah Silverman's character, who's named Rain Robinson, gets introduced as this astronomer and she gets in touch with. She detects Voyager because she was told to look for a certain kind of radiation, like you alluded to. Mm-hmm. And the man that she contacts is called Henry Starling, and it is played by Ed Begley Jr., who's relative. You may recognize Ed Begley Jr. as Stan Sitwell, the uh, man with Alpatia. Is that, is that what you say? From um, Arrested Development. And he's definitely like a that guy actor. So someone that you know and starling takes the information that this was found it's in this this radiation signature it's in orbit she's the the astronomer uh is very excited and uh wants to tell everybody but henry starling says no don't and puts her off and hangs up on sarah silverman and walks over to his bar to to drink on this uh, and we see he's got a tattoo. It's the same tattoo as the hippie we saw earlier. And this guy uh, is clearly some kind of tech mogul now. And this should, for any astute viewer, start to put things together. This guy apparently knows a lot about computers. That He does a lot of things with chips. And he knew that this radiation signature was possible, even though this technology shouldn't exist yet. And we know that the time ship went back in time and... Here we are. This guy seems to know something that's going on. Um, that's when eventually uh, Sarah Silverman takes on herself to, uh, you know, send a little message up to Voyager of like, welcome, to, welcome to Earth. 
and that's when uh, Harry Kim's like, oh, fuck. Uh, <laughs> uh, I don't know what to do. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, and contacts Janeway and Chakotay and say, uh, yo, uh, boss, uh, someone's trying to contact us up here. So that's probably bad. I would say the first half of the episode, Harry's doing a pretty great job being the little guy in charge of the big ship. And I was going to say that he might be, make the best, you know, decisions through the entire episode, but then I forgot the part towards the end where he just flies a ship down there. But yeah, for right now, Harry's pretty on the rails. Meanwhile, Janeway and Jacote have kind of followed the homeless guy and wait until he kind of goes back to his home base, like this stereotypical homeless guy lair with like a busted up car and, you know, in a garage or something like that. And, they corner him and he doesn't know who they are. And then eventually like this realization dawns on his face. And it turns out that the hobo is in fact a time hobo because this is Captain Braxton. This is the time cop that tried to kill them earlier, except now he's like a super duper old dude. And, and some of the worst makeup like this guy, like I said, he looks like they weren't trying to make him look like an old dude. They were trying to make him look like a caveman. And as soon as they show him, cause he, their first introduction to him is he's hanging up these, apocalyptic signs all over the place saying, you know, the end is near and all this other stuff, which, uh, oh gosh, this guy does know that, you know, the world's going to end and he's actually correctly predicting um, an apocalypse. But yeah, you, you totally spot him as uh, the same Cro-Mag looking uh, captain from before. And not only is he old, but he's also super crazy now. He actually um, explains the plot in a way that you know, it, it's pretty accessible, I think, to, to most viewers, even for a season Trek buffs like us and season sci fi watchers like you and me. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not very complex, uh, but, you know, for the normal viewer, it's broken down in a way that, you know, my, my guiding star is, is my wife. She's not a big sci fi person. She's definitely not a big Trek person. And she was not only following what was going on, but was kind of commenting along with me about kind of the insanity of the situation, which I'll get to in a moment. But the way that Crowbagn and Time Cop puts it is uh, they are locked into a predestination paradox. And the paradox is this. The explosion happened in the 29th century. Braxton detected what he detected and ascertained Voyager's culpability in some fashion for the explosion. He went back in time to stop Voyager so that the explosion will not happen. But his actions predicated the time travel situation that they now find themselves in that will lead to the explosion. And that issue is that his time ship got found by the Sterling guy in the 60s. And eventually, he's going to take that ship, going to take it into space, he's going to try and do time travel, and he's going to fuck it up. And when he fucks it up, it's going to blow up everything. Which I thought, very clean, very good. You know, it's easy to follow Enough technology on the table that it seems plausible. They don't go into so much detail that they open themselves up to criticism. So, yeah, broad strokes. It was solid. And he, you know, this Braxton guy has suffered as a consequence of not really being prepared to be stranded in the 20th century as a enlightened 29th century space time cop. He's been institutionalized. He 
he's been following the guy who's got his technology, but he's basically useless to them and is now just kind of bad shit. And eventually, like, L.A. cops come by to to hassle him. And he about his signs. <laughs> People have been complaining about your hobo signs. So you're coming with us. Yeah, it's it's, it's definitely like the most uh, uh, community policing moment the LAPD had in the 90s. The whole time I'm wondering, like, and, you know, obviously the answer is because they're trying to tell this kind of cheeky, fun light story. But what if Voyager had shown up right in time for the L.A. riots? <laughs> what have happened a much more interesting, riveting show? Actually, uh, there's a DS9 episode that kind of goes there. Well, that's not doing me any good right now. No. Um, my question is uh, Sterling, right? Stan Sitwell, he knows that Time Cop's out there. Yes. And Time Cop has tried a few times. So, what? While he was crash landing back to Earth, his ship, um, like the ship's versions of airbags, was to emergency transport him onto the surface while the ship crashed. Is that what happened, essentially? That's That's basically what he says. Because for him to get separated from the ship to a degree that Stan Sitwell beats him to it and somehow fends him off and whatever would go into some hippie guy eating beans out in the woods, being able to overpower Time Cop, whatever. But Sitwell knows that Time Cop's out there. Like, why wouldn't he have just had his corporate thug going off this guy years ago it seems like a real big loose end for someone who seems very careful to protect his secrets i i don't think they necessarily flat out say that sterling knew time cop was out there they they know time cop knew obviously what was going on but and and sterling knew eventually he expected the future people to show up but he knew that because he had their technology and it was just logical to him that that would happen. Not that he knew. And uh, in fact, uh, I think Janeway eventually makes reference to the fact they talked to the original owner and they got no response from Sterling at all. So I don't, that isn't ever dressed. So that's not an assumption that's necessarily accurate, but um, eventually the LA cops show up and Sterling, or rather uh, Captain Time Cop gets, you know, basically, run off by the cops and they go on a chase and this allows uh, Chakotay and Janeway to continue on to investigate that line of Sterling and the fact he has the technology. Meanwhile, Tuvok and Paris are headed towards where that signal came from that tried to contact Voyager. And that takes them to Griffith Observatory uh, where uh, Sarah Silverman is currently attempting to do all of the nineties girl things. And, <laughs> and, uh, apparently, uh, Tom has, has brushed up on his, his trucks because now not only does he know what a clutch and a radio is, uh, he knows how to hijack a Dodge Ram out of a dealership. Which you know like what? I'm going to cut him a break. I'm going to say that maybe he picked that up in the shoot. <laughs> It's possible. It's a great place to level up in uh, larceny and maybe whatever planet uh, operates the shoot penal colony has similar, you know, carburetor technologies. And, and he just picked it up in the space pokey. One of his many stints in space. Well, pokey. The, 
the uh, it could be this is something that really fucking bothered me for some reason. Did you notice how all the tricorders suddenly were fucking sonic screwdrivers in this episode? <laughs> like they could just do everything. They're just like fucking Swiss Army knives. They could hack fucking doors and shit. And well, like, you know, put a fucking tricorder up against the engine and it just starts. I guess who fucking knows. If Kit could do it with uh, microwave jamming, I'll cut him a break here and say that, you know, Federation hypertech should really be in its element to to use and abuse primitive ninety six. But uh, Tom and, and Tuvok they 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 head into uh, Sarah Silverman slash Rain Robinson's office before she comes in with her with her uh, her pizza because you know it's the nineties and. Uh, tries to act like they're lost and they have a meet cute as they say in, in film between Tom and, and uh, Sarah Silverman. And uh, he, he uses the wrong slang for the period. He says, I think groovy or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And essentially Tom eventually gets Tuvok to understand that he's distracting her so that he can uh, wipe her computer of all the information suggesting Voyager's existence in orbit. And uh, they try to escape while that's happening. Meanwhile, uh, Sterling has gotten wind of the fact that Robinson's been telling everybody that there might be spacemen in orbit and decides he's probably fucking ruthless as hell. And she decides she needs to be eliminated, liquidated as doctor. He's he's the doctor evil of this episode and uh, tells his henchmen to grab the quote unquote weapon uh, just in case, you know, future people are also there because clearly he knows they're around. And as Tuvok and Paris attempt to exfiltrate from from fucking with Sarah Silverman's uh, computer, uh, she comes tearing off ass after him, having realized his computer has been fucked with and they start an argument in the middle of, of Griffith Park Observatory's parking yeah. lot. It's like movies hackers action that Tuvok did to her computer. It's a big she old goes skull in and crossbows on it. It's like hack sword pont. <laughs> Some Vulcan leets speak FUs and there's a skeleton smoking a cigarette flipping her off. It's it's some real 90s shit. That's when the henchman shows up with what is obviously a 29th century phaser and starts just shooting at Tuvok, Paris, and Rain Robinson, and uh, zaps the Ford truck or the uh, the the Dodge Ram, and just it just evaporates in one shot. It's like I dream a genie just blinks out of existence. And uh, Tuvok, the by the book regulations Federation officer at a major national landmark in the middle of the day while getting shot at by a space laser says, this is the time for me to bust out my nine, do a sweet forward tactical roll and return fire. That's what's going to be the right call here in 1996. Yeah. Cause see Tuvok knows that this is pre nine 11. So they have implemented the enhanced security uh, features around you know major U.S. Uh, landmarks, and that the odds of him being recorded are pretty low. So he's he's playing the numbers. He knows what's up. I mean, this is pre self. Yeah. This is pre YouTube. This shit's not getting on the internet. It's gonna be fine. Yeah, masquerade's intact. Don't worry about it. Yeah, no um, problem. 
So uh, what I liked was when the henchmen go shooting with this mega weapon that instantly disintegrates the truck that it just gets the truck. The beam doesn't continue through and hit Paris on the other side or disintegrate them along with the truck. And they just blinks the truck out. And that uh, Tuvok shoots just this guy's gun instead of, you know, zapping him down and coming over there and interrogating him. Uh, whatever. So they got a fun little exchange. Uh, and after Tuvok shoots the gun out of the guy's hand, they run over to Sarah Silverman's uh, mystery machine, Scooby Mobile. Yes. They pile in and then speed off down the way. The security henchman has picked up the gun, is running, has a very clear shot. This van's like, I don't know, 10 yards away or whatever, and just kind of like, ah, darn. And let them go. <laughs> It's it's very TV, you know, uh-huh. it's very yeah. TV, very, very TV. We get a quick shot back up at Voyager where where Harry is delegated an important responsibility to, to Neelix and Cass so they can have screen time in this episode. And uh, their their duty is to watch all of the television. So Harry's like, well, we want to make sure that we're observing all the communication channels. So I'm going to put down our, our weird space hobos i'm gonna have them watch all of our uh, the tv in case something happens that we should be aware of and our side plot is that neelix and and kess get drawn into watching soap operas this is what they're doing this is what's happening (laughs) you know i dig it i think uh that what it was missing here was a conversation about how vapid entertainment like this is actually forbidden in the 24th century because it's addictive and doesn't do anybody good and that you turn Kess and Neelix into like the little worm guys from Men in Black that are addicted to coffee because in their solar system coffee is super illegal but on Earth they can have as much as they want and that's why they're here. <laughs> I like that. I think that would have been fun. Um, there's a lot of people up on the ship. You got Bolana still, you got Harry, and then you got the other hundred and 20 whatever dudes up there just sitting there twiddling their thumbs it's when um they discover that voyager had been scanned by this delta radiation pass that um janeway's like hey beam tuvok and paris over there and that's when harry told them that we can't because the main pattern buffer for the transporter is offline i can do emergency transports but we have to be super close my question is you've got shuttlecraft sitting there and and again, you know, you can't think too critically in these things. Otherwise, the episodes fall apart. But like they could have popped a shuttle out at any point and had, you know, transporter technology, whatever. Um, but you got other people sitting around. And I think a fun. And, and I'm going to go back into non sequitur again, and I'm still going to hold Harry Kim accountable. Like nobody in there is thinking. How do we take advantage of this? Like, it's clear that Voyager's plan is to fix the time conundrum and to bounce out of this time zone. Obviously, they're not going to invoke, you know, cryo sleep or anything hardline sci-fi like that. But like, there's there's not even discussion like Back to the Future. Was it end of one? Yeah, it was the end of Back to Future one where like Doc Brown just puts a letter in the mail and tells him to wait however many years before they deliver it and they could have you know put a letter in the mail said hey starfleet voyager's still alive and all the stuff i should have told you in non sequitur i'm going to tell you now 
and we're out there and don't lose hope and mom i love you but uh, yeah i mean no... at no point do they even entertain the idea um at, at this point and you know spoiler alert it takes until the very very end of this part two of this for the discussion to even happen but regardless uh i i kind of come to expect it they don't ever kind of take that second level step of them attempting to really take advantage of the circumstances is it because they don't want to contaminate the time stream even though they're down there having like fucking star wars stormtrooper blaster fights i know like they can't even credibly make that argument but (laughs) um the uh the the tuvok tom team now has a sarah silverman and the scooby mobile uh the mystery machine uh, and they're they're cruising away and and Tuvok is is, you know, wooden as always, while Paris is trying to basically vamp for time with this lady, uh, trying to convince them that they're secret agents. But in, in reality, all they really want is, Shut you know, that cunt's mouth or I'll come over there and fuck start her head. you know, they just want her to be quiet and and let her you know, let them do stuff without having to explain anything. But. So if Sarah Silverman really wants to ask questions, they like say that they're trying to stop the KGB again because Paris doesn't I understand. like that. Yeah, like he doesn't quite can't quite triangulate the right references for the time period they're in. He he keeps he's just off because this isn't exactly the part of the 20th century he knows. But to a 24th century spaceman, and if you think about it, um, a person who's quote unquote expert of the I guess it would be what the 17th century. Mm-hmm. From our perspective, being off by 20 or 30 years in your references wouldn't doesn't seem so bad to us, right? <laughs> I bet <laughs> like, you if you take your average uh, high school senior right now and ask him at which point the KGP ceased you know, operations that you're, you're going to get a lot of people within the Tom Paris uh, knowledge range. So, uh, yeah, I don't blame him. It was a fun play there. I thought that that goof went off good. Um Sarah Silverman at this point has also fingered Tuvok as being something different because during the shootout, his uh, do rag fell off and she spotted his elf ears, uh, which they attribute to um, a family trait or whatever. And the uh, that scene wraps without much resolution. They're just kind of chilling. In fact, I think that's the like the last of it of them that we see in the episode. Yeah. They basically focus on the other plot for the rest of the first part here. And, uh, that's Chakotay and Janeway using their tricorder slash, uh, you know, sonic screwdrivers to break into, uh, Sterling's company, which is by the way, called chrono works, which is like the biggest red flag ever that it's probably a oh, time thing. <laughs> it might as well be called uh stolen future technology technologies. <laughs> yes. And they're in there and, and, uh, Cal 9000's on the wall, man. Like the the security system, that big red pulsing light next to the door. Did you catch that? I did. They, I like that shout out there. They also have another shout out in the scene when uh, when Janeway sits down at the computer to try and figure out what the fuck Ed Begley Jr.'s character has stolen um, or where the time ship is or any of this. Uh, she She calls using the technology akin to using stone knives and bearskins, which is a quote from Spock from a time travel episode from TOS. In fact, from city of the edge of forever, the time travel episode of TOS, one of the best episodes of science fiction ever. I, I like that. It was elegant. 
And uh, eventually they're basically hacking into this computer and they're figuring out all of of, uh, Sterling's secrets. And uh, that's, of course, exactly when Sterling dramatically appears. And well, before that happens, I think there's some really good stuff that goes on in here. Early in the episode, when we first uh, see Sterling slash Stan Sitwell, he's chewing one of their business affiliates out um, over a computer chip that he found to be, you know, in, you know, inappropriate and not good enough for the new wave of technology that they're going to release. That's kind of when they establish him as an innovator. And as Chakotay and Janeway are talking to the audience saying like, man, this guy got a hold of this 29th century technology, like back in the sixties, they got a picture of him with Nixon shaking hands, establishing what a big deal he is and, and all these innovations. And they basically say like the entire prime timeline, right? Has all been a direct result of this guy's tampering because the, And you're not seeing like fantastic technologies, right? Like this is very much 1996. Like, yeah, the computer is complete gibberish because in TV, computer screens always look, you know, completely crazy. But it's not like there's flying cars or anything that's going on here that's unavailable to actual 1990s. Um, And yeah, so they, they completely say that the entire Star Trek timeline and in our timeline is a result of temporal manipulations and the fact that like the time police never really detected it. The fact that Janeway and Chakotay have just identified it and it never really gets rectified. They're just like, yeah, we should not have ever been as advanced as we are, but I want to, oh I want to, well. I want to save going down this rabbit hole. Cause I have deep, deep, deep thoughts about this exact rabbit hole you've hit on for our, our mess mm-hmm. hall that we're going to do on sure. January 28th. Right, let's, uh, let's book market. Oh yeah. But, January 28th. but the point the, the I'm just going to put a little, little tease out there. What if you are absolutely correct, but the 29th century time cops absolutely knew this was the case and they knew this predestination paradox had to occur to enable all of that technology advancement in the nineties that would lead to everything else that came after it and therefore arranged this to occur how it happened. I and mean, that's also you think uh, Captain Caveman could have been a sacrificial lamb. I think it's possible. I think it's possible. We'll save that, though. I think that's a that's a credible it's a tease. It's a V'ger tease for you. Hmm. Um, but uh, eventually uh, Starling shows back up. His thug has the super phaser and Janeway fronts a bit with him. Is like, listen, I'm here to take it all back. That's what's up. Don't fuck it all up. You're going to accidentally blow up the entire solar system. But he's just like, you know, he's evil time thief Steve Jobs. So he doesn't care. He's going to just go, you know, and continue to harvest his uh, his his boon of of technology, nearly a millennium in front of him. And uh, um, eventually, uh this is when Harry conveniently contacts uh, Janeway and says, Hey captain, what's going on? And Janeway says, Hey, download the contents of that computer. Sterling doesn't like that says stop, or I'm going to, you know, use my fancy super phaser on your captain. And she's going to be super dead. Harry does stop, but decides that he's got to rescue the captain and, and the commander. 
And he doesn't have long range transporters. He only has short range transporters. So in order to rescue two people, the captain and the commander, he is going to have to fly Voyager in like close formation right over LA, like lower than a fucking 747 going to LAX where everyone is going to be able to see it. And he decides after about 15 seconds, yeah, I'm going to do that and does it beams him back onto the ship. And wouldn't you know it? Everybody saw it. And the Neelix calls up to the bridge and is like, yo, we're on the TV because of course everyone saw that. No, no. Someone who was taking camcorder footage in their backyard was able to rush this down to the police state or the, the news agency, transcribe these tapes and, and play it as a live broadcast. Like <laughs> the, the, the game masters were just waiting for you to make this mess up. And now they're going to capitalize on it hard. The shocker here is that he pulls the stunt. They beam Chakotay and Janeway back up to the bridge and Janeway gives him a pat on the back. Like, there was a specific order given, do not let this ship be seen. Yep. And this is an ongoing theme for Voyager that Janeway gives good Starfleet orders. In my absence, do not take the ship in traffic with the Vidians who are going to attempt to ambush you and organ harvest all of us just to save Chakotay and I. Do not return back here ignored do not bring the ship out into plain view ignored what what other classic janeway orders have we had uh ignored only for her to roll over and be like oh that was the right move like of course nobody takes you serious because every time you turn around someone's breaking an order you're just like oh okay fine the chakotay uh dipping out to go run his suicide run uh was against specific orders the fact that he spends seconds uh, making that decision, like it's not like he has to think super hard of like, man, do I rescue risk all of time and space and contaminating all I all we are and ever all we will ever be so that I can rescue, you know, two people from a yeah, situation man, they very well may be able to get themselves out of. That's his M.O., though. I mean, let's push back to, um, you know, lame house on the prairie the hard time he gave Tuvok about not going and dealing with the Vidians against the captain's orders. Like I would say this is well within the, the established persona of Harry Kim is ignore common sense and do whatever your heart feels. Which is probably why he's not command material, but you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, and also, you know, don't bother flying a shuttle or something else down that also has the same massive technology the rest of your Shane way in her fly ass white suit and mm-hmm. and Chakotay and his significantly less fly ass uh Miami Vice suit get I'm feeling what Chakotay's wearing I got a question for you the uh while they're in Stan Sitwell's office like the back wall is a hologram and it disappears and then you see uh the time ship the the Captain Caveman's future time ship uh sitting in like this area 51 hangar getting fixed and built do they use this ship as like the basis of the delta flyer because it's like this it looks like uh what was it the clone wars jedi fighters which have of course come later but it's like this triangular thing with like a 
cockpit bump. Um, is, is this thing later get incorporated as the Delta Flyer? You know, I, I don't know if that's explicitly what happened, but uh, the Delta Flyer does bear a strong resemblance to its profile. So there could, certainly could have been inspiration. You know, the same guys did those props, I'm sure. So yeah. I'm sure they, they might have looked back at some of the old stuff they did. And they're like, hey, that's actually this pretty angular, pretty interesting design. So I'm trying to think of could another be. example, too, where because, you know, Janeway's like, hey, you're hurting the time space continuum. You're poisoning stuff with this technology release you've been doing. And we know that you're thinking about going into the future. You're going to F up your calculations. You're going to die and you're going to kill everybody with you. And like you said, he completely ignores it. And if anything, these events kind of make it seem like he's going to push his timeline forward. Like it's some super two dimensional villainy right there. They don't do much with Starling as a villain. It's just not, he's just not that interesting. He's, he's very evil because he wants to make more money. And that's all you really ever get to know about the fucking guy. And that's the least interesting thing that you could have done. Here's something else to know about him. And this is a direct quote from Bran Branagh. Sterling was our first great Voyager villain. (laughs) What? Give me a fucking break. This is your idea of a great villain? Clearly uh, a fucking bumbling two-dimensional clown like this is exactly what you're after. Because you had one of the most compelling villains of all time, Seska, Queen Uh of the Burns, that you just completely flushed down the fucking toilet. And then got the toilet plunger, backed it up so we could make sure that she was dead and unrecoverable before you flushed her again. And and this is what you're going to put on a pedestal as the first great Voyager villain. Not the Vidians, who were terrifying. Not Culla, who was catty. Not the Queen of Burns, who was scorching. But this 2D asshole. Some, some fucking evil corporate guy from the yeah, 90s. So, <laughs> some hippie sellout. Uh, they commit some real um, cardinal sci-fi sins here by trying to quantify data based in 96 terms. They they download what I think the, uh, his database off of his computer. And then somehow this guy is able to use the transport because like they go to transport the, the time ship away and just take it away since they're already down there flying around anyway. She's like, yeah, just do circles around the building, um, lock the transporter on. And we'll try and transport this thing out because, you know, what's the worst thing that could happen? It's not like we just effed up our last ride home through a wormhole over some Ferengi assholes. I'm sure this SoCal asshole wouldn't be able to thwart our mighty plan, but he hacks the transporter signal somehow, patches into the Voyager mainframe and downloads 20 percent of uh, Voyager's amazing computer library down to his ibm desktop which i don't think that there's realistically enough data capacity in the entire earth in 1996 to accommodate for even like two percent of voyager's core too bad the info he did got wasn't like you know what captain sulu was having for breakfast that day you know 80 years in the future i guess that's their attempt to make sterling more of a threat rather than just like a joke a joke villain like mm-hmm. that he's got like some mastery of the 29th century technology that he's stolen, mm-hmm. which is like, I think the explanation for why he has things that would be impossible in 1996, obviously like, yeah, you can do that. Cause he has things that are outclass Voyager. Technically he just doesn't know how to fully use them. 
Uh, but uh, we're at the end of the episode. We get we get the he he got some of their database when when Voyager attempted to pluck the time ship and ended up failing. And ultimately, Voyager has also broken the shit out of the masquerade, if you will, and let everybody know that you know, spaceships are real and here and flying above L.A. for some reason. And that's when they they cut to the uh, to be continued. One other note I saw on this episode. Did you see that Sarah Silverman mm-hmm. had the same experience that you related from your panel of trying to yep. change a line? Yep. She tried to change a line and said uh, all of a sudden all the execs had their uh, cell phones out and it took like an hour before they were able to come back. And and she found the the precision nature of the script to be very stifling. I could tell throughout her entire performance, like she's not good in this so sarah silverman is a comedian and i don't if you take her or leave her if you find her funny great if you don't i am your brother but at least she's got a style and that style she's very comfortable in she is not at all comfortable spitting out this dialogue for this entire show she's very robotic in her delivery and you can tell that the whole not being able to sort of like feel out her lines and ad lib it a little bit the kind of the in that quippy way a comedian would probably want to yeah um, hurt because she just she was basically a a wrote she was actor tron 9000 in this entire thing there wasn't a lot of personality to her performance like if you didn't know that sarah silverman in 10 years from this point would would become very famous for being a comedian there is no indication of that whatsoever in this yeah instance. that's what i was gonna say is you know if she wasn't to blow up and you weren't to be so familiar with her style do you think her performance stifling would have really come across um it, it was just a kind of a, a doofy written character for i don't know what function it was ultimately supposed to serve here maybe she's got a bigger role in the second uh episode in this arc but I mean, she obviously plays a role later on and, you know, it's it's sort of like the the same role that uh, the Kirk's opposite in Star Trek for Voyage Home, you know, like the the native yeah, sort yeah. of figure that's also a romantic foil, like similar beat, similar idea. And I just I don't want to say she's miscast. She's she's perfectly fine in theory it's just that this the scripted dramatic television is clearly not what sarah silverman is comfortable doing and and uh, believe it or not they thought about making her a cast member like brand braga wanted to like make rain robinson a character that came with them after this and became a part what of what is wrong with these guys yeah I, i'm fucking i don't know man i'm, I'm gonna go right back into it again you, you threw Seska and Lon Suter and the Kazon and the Vidians all in the trash. And then you're going to look at this stupid character and be like, this is what we need more of around here. Um, I, I know, again, we've been very hard on the episode up through this point. Uh, but like I said before, I thought it was a fun watch. I thought I was going to have a lot more stuff to get catty about, but it was easy. It was fun. And I do feel like they set some very high stakes that are reasonable for Star Trek. Um, you know, the the temporal 
uh, implosion, the contamination of the of the timeline, especially once they revealed that their reality as they knew it was already a byproduct of um, of Chronoworks um, stolen technology. So the sci-fi concepts are there. They're realizing them. There's some decent action in it. There's some fun special effects. And yeah, Harry flying the Voyager through the clouds of L.A. is like the ultimate moops moment. <laughs> Total, it's a hundred percent certified uh, moops. <laughs> that is a hardcore moops. You know the. Oh yeah. Also, by the end of it, uh, while uh, Stan Sitwell was downloading twenty percent of Voyager's database, part of that twenty percent just so happened to be the MF Doctor. They they leave with a lot of threads open. I mean, you, you know, have confidence they're going to screw it all up in the next section. But I I love these episodes because they're my favorite part. The kind of good, bad, um, enjoyable, fun to watch, uh, but just schlocky, stupid garbage that defies any kind of in, internal logic as to what these characters should be doing. But I I will always take those aspects in service to something that ends up being fun to watch versus all of those things in service of something that is drudgery or boring or otherwise unwatchable. So this gets a total pass from me uh, on, on the basis of it being a fun, bad, it's good, bad, not bad, bad. Would be the way I Star would Trek go. timelines are always interesting. And again, like you said, they've gone to several different places in Earth's history. Uh, Time Zero is standing out to me, and that was the uh, Samuel Clemens Guinan Data's Head in a Cave episode. Yep. Um, I liked when they start touching Wild West stuff. It's usually like Warf holodeck programs. Um, the 90s don't really sit that great, and I think ultimately it was kind of a not the optimal choice here. I, you know, when we pick up in next gen in encounter at Farpoint, Q's courtroom that he holds starts bringing in like some weird parts of um, Earth history that I don't really know where they fit in at this point. Like, remember the dudes, the soldiers that were like had like the cocaine janitor leashes that they're like taking hits before, like shooting each other down in that crazy courtroom like was that all a byproduct of like the eugenics wars does does enterprise touch on any like where this weird like ultra violent mad max uh stints of human history come in uh actually both ds9 and enterprise end up laying some track adjacent to all that yeah there's that enterprise has a plot whole plot line about the eugenics wars and ds9 actually has episodes where uh, they time travel to a period kind of before the grand chaos of the third world war. And that shit's kind of all fucked up at that point already. So you kind of do. So uh, we'll, we'll get to that's this. also got to be weird. Like you're talking about in this one, um, Janeway's like, oh, yeah, you know, this part of L.A. doesn't exist anymore and it's underwater. And there was this terrible tragedy like. So much bad stuff happens on Earth between when they're standing and when they're born like it's gotta be 
like standing there on Earth before, you know, Judgment Day happens and Skynet nukes all of humanity and tries to enslave the rest. Like at no point do they ever discuss like, you know, we could save a lot of heartache and needless infant death or whatever. And it's they don't easy even for them reflect to on it for a second. And that's where this episode, I think, is is not actually good. It's good bad mm-hmm. is that it misses all of the opportunity that it gives itself to tell a compelling Star Trek story within its framework. Star Trek is known for telling incredibly compelling uh, time travel related stories. And this is just schlocky, stupid action in the 90s featuring robots Sarah Silverman and Ed Bagley Jr. Can we play what if real quick? Sure. What if, you know, you had a superficial setup like this and all they had to do is go back and recover the, you know, the leaked 29th century technology and you had a contingent of the crew like we could prevent, you know, World War Three Hitler from being born or we could do something great for Earth and, you know, stop some tragedy or whatever and like it's this type of episode that they actually pop a mutiny and have a contingent of the crew go off rogue and really just say fuck it we're gonna change time space and we think we're gonna do it for the better and what you thought was gonna be a a zany little time travel adventure like turns into like a deep crew piece much better idea it's a shame we can't teleport you through time to write for this fucking show in 1996 (laughs) yeah damn fine back in time to come through the writer's room wielding a chair like a wwf match i want to let you know though that to to conclude our discussion i i took it upon myself this week to actually find a rule of acquisition oh did you because i was looking i I couldn't find anything good you know i did i went to memory gamma which is the like there's memory alpha, which is canon, memory beta, which is like uh, pseudo canon, like the novels and that sort of thing, and then memory gamma, which is all fan stuff, because there's all kinds of made up but still interesting rules of acquisition on memory gamma. Mm-hmm. So here it is, rule of acquisition two sixty seven. Shut that cunt's mouth! Or I'll <laughs> which one was that? <laughs> Thank you for joining us on Peach and Please, a hateful voyage to the Delta Quadrant. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.